Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mystifyingly Missing, True Crime and Thought-Provoking Events. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore, well, cases about missing persons or objects, true crime, and events that may make you look at the world a little bit differently or reevaluate things. If you're new here, welcome. And if you're a previous listener, welcome back. For today's episode, I will let you know I've recorded some version of it at least four times. It's just not coming out the way that I really wanted it to. So I'm finally saying this is it no matter what I'm going to go with this version. I do struggle sometimes with keeping some of my personal opinion out of things until you know, we get to the end and it's more of a discussion or monologue, I guess I should say, about the story or stories that I've covered. And in some of these, I just, I really wanted to say exactly how I felt about the situation, but did want to save it until the end. Also, there's some science involved in this one, and I didn't want it to sound really boring because at some point it could get that way. So... What I'm going to do is just give my disclaimers that I normally give at the beginning of an episode, as well as some additional ones, and then get into the history, the science, and the stories behind Spanish Fly. This podcast, as with most podcasts that cover these topics, will sometimes include discussions that some people may find triggering or disturbing. These situations may involve suicide, death, injury, and various other things. But, you know, this is a podcast that explores some topics that do automatically delve into those types of situations. Also, this episode today will include some more adult themes, even though I don't think it's really beyond what one might expect with listening to a true crime podcast. Lastly, like I mentioned, there will be some science behind this, chemicals, homeopathic medication. Um, Please do not try any of the things that I'm going to be discussing. It's to give a history of what led up to the main case that we'll be reviewing. So again, please do not take any of this as any type of medical advice or information. This is a history, basically. So with all that being said, let's get into today's episode. Throughout history, there have been a few motives that defy space and time that have pushed people to do some pretty ill-advised and destructive things. Some of those motivations are power, jealousy, love, and sex, or lust, if you will. I know that money can also be a very big motivator, except for the instances that we'll be discussing today. It's really coming down to power, jealousy, love, and sex. A lot of these motivations overlap and are interconnected. Like I said, we will be discussing something called Spanish fly, and that has for millennia, even going back to ancient Greece, have been has been used as an aphrodisiac it's been used by apothecaries so it has been used for a very 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 long time 
What made me decide to look at this was a case that I saw on a YouTube video by a channel called Real Crime. So rather than just focus on that case, that really did make me want to take a look at the history. I honestly didn't know what Spanish fly was. I'd heard the term before, never really thought about it. You know, that's that. If it doesn't apply to anything I'm doing, I wouldn't really take time to learn about it. As I've stated, Spanish fly is an aphrodisiac that's been used for many, many ages. My first pause was thinking, okay, this is a fly, so do you eat it um, for, to be an aphrodisiac or what? And just hearing that word fly and something you might ingest really was not that appealing to me. However, a Spanish fly is not actually a Spanish fly. It is really a beautiful beetle if one would find beetles beautiful, but it's a wonderful shade of emerald green. And when the light hits it in just the right way, it's really looking metallic. It's very tiny as well. It's about a fifth of an inch wide and about eight tenths of an inch long. The most important factor here, though, for the purpose of this topic is a chemical that the male excretes. The female does not produce this chemical, which later was isolated and named cantharidin, but the female will lay her eggs during the course of mating. She has received this chemical from the male and she deposit it, deposits it on the eggs as a form of defense. So when someone were to touch it, touch any of the eggs, it actually blisters the skin or whatever part of the body may touch that. So it can be very, very painful. However, through the course of time, people did find these other uses for it. There are records in history that give some examples of when, you know, Spanish fly has been used. Um, it's been rumored that even emperors and empresses, kings and queens have used it. There's even stories about how one of the emperors of Rome, um, Augustus Caesar, that his wife actually used the aphrodisiac effects to provoke some people into some rather compromising situations. And then she would use that as a form of blackmail. And I'm not sure if anybody is familiar with the infamous Marquis de Sade, who was very sexually adventurous, we'll just say, but it is rumored that he may have accidentally killed um, two sex workers by giving them cantharidin. Two of the most curious rumors, I guess you would say, is that the liberator of many South American countries, Simone Bolivar, may have been accidentally poisoned by Spanish fly. He notoriously did not like to go to doctors and as such may have used Spanish fly as more of a natural remedy. However, there are other speculations that he may have accidentally been poisoned by the use of arsenic, which many people did use as well um, as medicine. 
or possibly tuberculosis is what led to his death. Through the different articles I've read, I'm leaning more towards the tuberculosis. There is also, again, speculation that George Washington may have been inadvertently killed by the use of cantharidin or Spanish fly. He suffered from epiglottitis and he may have been treated with this and and it may have led to his death. So again, these are speculations, but it just goes to show a history of some of the uses that apothecaries and doctors use this for and, you know, may not have always had the expectant outcome. Until about 1810, the usage of the Spanish fly were really just the ground-up powder of the beetle once, you know, it had died and had dried. So the powder would be sprinkled in two different things. A lot of times the use of wine was the best option as the beetle itself could taste very bitter. So you figure if it's a blistering agent, it may not exactly you know, have the best taste, but it was sprinkled a lot of times in the wine. And even up until the 1990s, looking at the culinary or spice um, practices of using it, it had been able to be sold in Moroccan spice markets, but sometime in the mid 1990s or thereabouts, it was banned from being sold in the spice markets. But in 1810, that was when a man named Pierre Robiquet actually isolated the chemical itself, the cantharidin. And this is actually odorless and tasteless, but it's also very, very potent. As the beetle itself was ground up and it was not just the chemical secretions, it may have still had an effect on people and it may still have blistered some, but nothing compared to the pure isolated chemical. Currently in the United States, at least, there is no FDA-approved purpose of using cantharidin, even though there is research being done about how it may be able to treat some conditions. The conditions that it normally would treat have to do with um, skin diseases or irritations, um, such as one of the past purposes was used to burn off warts. So that just tells you how strong it is as well. So it does have some pharmaceutical purposes. And just for reference as well, if you do see things being sold as Spanish fly, according to a few of the different articles I read, it's actually not really the, um, the beetle, the Lita vesicatoria, which is the formal name. It's usually other types of herbs or natural supplements that give you a warm and fuzzy feeling. And it's that warm feeling that made people wonder if it could be used as an aphrodisiac. We may hear terms or words such as flame, heat, or fanning the flames of desire. And this all indicates that a lot of people equate passion with heat or warmth. There was a description that I found um, using a quote by a man named John Quincy, but a date is not given. 
I did look up any John Quincy's that may, you know, be famous or relevant enough that a quote that he said or had written was saved many years later. And just by hearing the name John Quincy, my mind automatically went to John Quincy Adams, who was the sixth president of the United States. So trying to look up information, I did find that John Quincy Adams' grandfather was named John Quincy, hence how he got his middle name. And so this would have also made John Quincy John Adams' father-in-law, John Adams, who was the second president of the United States. So though I could not find confirmation that this was the same John Quincy, the fact that one of his quotes is saved so many years later makes me think it's the same person because he himself was also an early politician in America. But what he said was, to, to quote him, they certainly, to a strange degree, excite lust and provoke to venereal practices, not by any better abilities which they give, but by stimulation those parts which are the seat or incentives to such desires, end quote. So basically he was saying it didn't make anybody perform any better, but it kind of stirred you know, those flames up. However, as far as performance, shall we say. I also went in my mind to the commercials that talk about those little blue pills. And you might be familiar with the sayings or advice they give at the end that if you do decide to use that medication, but experience an erection for four hours or longer that you need to seek medical attention. There have been cases where the use of a Spanish fly did lead to what was called priapism, if I'm saying that correctly, which basically means a very long, continual, and painful erection. So something I really don't think most men were looking for. So even though it was known to be dangerous, it was still used. Um, a couple of just brief stories that I will go over before I get into the main one was just the story of a man in... Europe near Lake Geneva that had some type of growth. Um, it said tumor on his leg. And he went to the barber as the barbers at that time were the ones who actually did the cutting. Doctors would normally evaluate or you know give advice to the patients. But if cutting was needed, that was done by a barber. Though the retelling of the story described it as a tumor, I almost have to wonder, given events that happened later, whether it was really a cyst or possibly even an abscess, because the barber did what he needed to do um, as far as treating the quote-unquote tumor, but afterwards he put a salve or some type of medication on that spot, and that was cantharidin or the use of the Spanish fly. Again, at that time, it would have been the ground-up form, not the actual pure isolate. So once he did put this on the man's leg, his knee, he was in excruciating pain. Um, they said pretty quickly, um, you know, he started to have problems such as 
blood in his urine. He, of course, was in tremendous pain. He was having stomach issues. But as soon as it was taken off, he began to feel better. And it doesn't say whether or not he survived later or how long these symptoms persisted. I do think for the retelling of the story, the time frame was very condensed because it seems very far-fetched that it went from putting the compound or potion, whatever the barber had made, on his leg and then just taking it off. So as far as the time frame, I think it probably had to extend over a period of, if not just hours, even days, for him to start showing those symptoms. The next case was actually a criminal criminal case that took place in England, and this is in regards to a woman named Catherine DeMay. So Catherine was what people at that time considered a spinster. This was 1739, and Given that time frame, probably if she was beyond 20, that was getting older as far as not being married. She did live with a family, so it was kind of a boarding house where she, you know, rented a room and, you know, did interact with the family. The people that she lived with were named Mr. and Mrs. Carlton, and there was a man named Michael Dunn who worked for them. Unfortunately, Michael Dunn passed away, and by all accounts of anyone who treated him, the only thing that it could have been was Spanish fly. So, how does Catherine DeMay come into all of this? Some people thought that she may have poisoned him to be able to seduce him in a way, that she was lonely, and she figured by putting that in his drink that he would you know, basically feel the urge and be with her. Other variations may say that she was not getting the attention she wanted from him, so she poisoned him intentionally. So she was actually charged and taken to court for this. So it is, it is very showing of the fact that there was no evidence. And when I say there was no evidence, I mean, there was nothing that would point to her as poisoning him. Witnesses and people that knew her said that there had never been any type of affection between the two of them. It didn't seem like she ever showed any informality or intimacy towards Michael Dunn. And also, given the time frame, she did not actually have access to putting it in anything that he may have ingested. But while he was at the house one day, he did begin to feel just a little bit, um, you know, ill. And he decided to start towards his brother's house. But before he got there, he actually had to stop and sit down because it was progressively getting worse. His brother, though, did come across him while walking and of course, helped him up, got him back to his house, and did his best to, you know, treat whatever was going on with with Michael. And we also have to remember in 1739, it's not like there were huge hospital complexes where he could have taken him. It's not, you know, a place where you could just, you know, go next door and, 
find someone who could help. There were no phones either. So eventually it did get to the point where he had to reach out for assistance. So he contacted an apothecary named Mr. Varney. Now, upon evaluation, Mr. Varney thought that Michael may have had a venereal disease, but Michael had said no, um, that he had actually said he had never been with a woman. But those who were evaluating him thought maybe he was trying to save his reputation. Um, the, the apothecary, Mr. Varney, was quoted in the trial transcript However, there is actually part of the transcript that is not given verbatim, but this is what was said. Quote, he found a very strange alteration in himself. And in here, the transcript puts in parentheses, the witness here made use of such expressions in his account of the disorder and the effects of the poison as decency obliges us to suppress. End quote of the trial transcript. So in other words, the, the apothecary saw something that had injured Michael, but because of decency at that time, the transcript did not go into detail of exactly what that meant. So we don't know if the apothecary um, referring to a possible venereal disease was discussing the male genitalia, or if he was discussing other topics that people of that time frame may have found not polite to use in public discourse. So we really don't know, but there was enough there for Mr. Varney to say, I think, you know, he had a venereal disease. Other apothecaries or doctors did also consult to see if they could figure out what happened. What's also interesting here is it does give a time frame in the fact that Michael did not die immediately, that he was able to talk to the doctors and apothecary as far as whether or not he had ever been with a woman, whether or not he had a venereal disease. So it was not just a couple of moments after taking the Spanish fly. Further in testimony about Michael's condition, it's said that his stomach was, quote, disordered, end quote. His throat was hurt as well as some of the previous, um, you know, information like the man in like Geneva. He was not able to urinate and had begun to show signs of renal or kidney failure. One of the biggest issues to come along in the trial was conversation about how long it would take for the Spanish fly to actually take effect. Um, one person said it could take about 12 hours. However, a, another medical professional said it actually can vary on a number of different things, such as the how much was taken, um, the actual temperament of the person's stomach. Yes, they use the word temperament. Um, and just other different factors. So you could not just say, yes, it would be 12 hours um, across the board. There had to be other things that could be considered. And yet one other opinion, it stated that it could be eight days. So no consistency at all about you know, what effects and how quickly the effects would come upon a person after taking it. But Catherine DeMay did have a number of supporters. And 
Included in that number were even some of Michael's friends. They were able to come forward and you know, provide some, some information about what Michael had said and shown them. Now, smallpox at the time was still, you know, a disease that could kill. Um, it's been pretty much eradicated now, but back then it was a huge concern. And one of the rumored um, treatments for pox or smallpox would have been Spanish fly. So in one of the testimonies, a friend said that Michael had shown him um, some medicine that he was told would cure the pox. So since he said the pox, I'm kind of assuming smallpox, um, as that would have been the most common at that time. Another man named John Thompson stated that he saw some pills and vials that Michael had, and yet another person said that while walking with Michael, that Michael again um, had showed him some medication that Michael stated that he had a, quote, distemper and said that this box of pills would cure him. Now, two of these men, the other one named James Gilstrap and then also John Thompson again, said that they thought that Michael was showing them um, this in kind of a bragging way such as saying, look, I have a cure or I have a prevention. And, you know, was just kind of showing off what he had. All of these um, pieces of information then seemed to point towards Catherine's innocence. You know, because again, there was literally no physical evidence against her and no eyewitness or even circumstantial evidence against her. Thankfully, the jurors of that time did see through everything and they acquitted her. As far as the actual truth, such as why Michael may have taken the Spanish fly on his own, whether he thought it was a prevention for smallpox or a treatment, or if it's as the apothecary had thought, maybe he had a venereal disease, it does seem that he took it on his own and that unfortunately led to his death as well as a very traumatic experience for Catherine DeMay. So going to the main case that we're going to cover, this takes place in 1954, and it involves a man named Arthur Ford who went beyond any type of conscionable action to get what he wanted. Arthur Ford was 44 years old. He was married, he had children, and he worked at a pharmaceutical firm. Now, he was not actually involved in any of the pharmacology. He was more administrative and ran the office where they worked on fulfilling wholesale orders. They had a number of typists in his area, so he supervised actually 24 female typists. Um, he only supervised 26 people in all, so most of the people that worked as his direct reports were women. Arthur had also served his country during World War II, and unlike so many others who did not get to come home, he did, and given that he had a great job, he had a loving wife and children, that he should have been appreciative of what he had. 
He even had, you know, the nice home in the suburbs, and he had a good steady job. Amongst the 24 women who worked for him, there was a woman named Betty Grant. She was 17 years younger than Arthur, being 27 years old. But he became obsessed with her, and she did not feel the same at all about him. It's said that she started working at that pharmaceutical company when she was only 14 years old. Actually, it stated that she was at the firm for 13 years, so since she was 27, it would put her age at around 14. And also, given that time frame, I wonder if she had gone to work um, to support the family or help support you know, other aspects of the war effort since it would have been about the same time. So this may mean, too, since Arthur had served in the war, that she may not have known him the whole time since she had worked there, but she probably knew him for a good portion of her adult life. And as one would expect when spending so much time every day with a person, even if you just talk to them while passing by, they may become friends or acquaintances, and you know a little bit about each other. Eventually, Ford started to ask Betty out for a date, but she didn't want to go. However, she had to tread this very fine line. At that point in time, there weren't laws that would protect people from being harassed at work. And this would be sexual harassment. It was very blatant. He wanted her and he made it known. He kept asking her and asking her and she had to keep up with coming or coming up with ways to tell him no. Near Betty sat a woman named June Mallins. June was only 19 years old and it seemed like she had an incredibly bright life in front of her. She worked at the pharmaceutical company but had only recently returned back to the area. She had lived outside of her home area, but had returned and began working at the pharmaceutical company. Also, one time a photographer told her that she ought to enter some beauty pageants, and she did, and did pretty well. She also taught Sunday school and loved to act and dance. So she sounds like a woman that could not be kept down. She was engaged to a man named John, who was a couple of years older than her, and they were just so deeply in love. Getting back to Betty. In Arthur's mind, they shared a, quote, fondness of each other, end quote. But they definitely did not, at least from Betty's end. Each day, though, she had to get up, walk into the building, and face Arthur Ford, trying to keep him at bay while still trying to keep her job. So after a lot of time had lapsed and Arthur was getting very impatient. He decided to do something that, if it had been successful and if it had happened now, would have been considered rape. He had heard stories about Spanish Fly when he had served in the war. It doesn't say exactly what he had heard about it, but it was very obvious it would have been an aphrodisiac because why else would he have focused in on this one particular thing. We also have to remember that what he was hearing about most likely would have been the ground up beetle, not what Arthur ended up doing. He definitely did not understand the 
the true strength of the chemical of the cantharidin. He did learn that his own pharmaceutical company produced cantharidin. And this is where it's important that we understand that yes, the ground up beetle tasted horrible, but this chemical in its pure or isolated form would not have any odor or taste. Arthur then followed a pharmacist into the stock room one day and he found out that yes, his company did have the cantharidin, but the pharmacist in no unequivocal terms told him that Spanish fly was bad news. It was dangerous. It was poison. Don't even think about using it. But while he was there, Arthur then, of course, agreed with the man, but took note of where the Spanish fly was kept. And later on, he went about a way of procuring it. So one day, he bought candy at lunch, and he laced it with Spanish fly. And it only takes a little bit of an amount. Um, I believe he used like the tips of scissors to place it on the candy. He did not buy enough of this candy for necessarily everybody in the office, but it was not unusual for him to, you know, pick up some candy or something for the people in the office. He was just very sure to make sure that Betty got one of the laced candies. June Mallon did also take a piece and that also was laced. She kind of set it to the side and didn't eat it immediately. But within an hour of eating it, she started to have stomach pains. And she went to kind of an infirmary um, that they had at the company. And eventually she was taken to the hospital. By about 3.20, Betty had also started to experience stomach pains and she went to that same sick bay. Arthur then said he started to feel bad and he had a headache and he felt like he was going to faint, which he did eventually collapse and was also taken to the hospital. June was getting worse. Betty was too. And the same pharmacist who had told Ford not to use Spanish fly actually ended up driving Betty to the hospital. Now the doctors there didn't really do anything. They just looked at her. They saw that her mouth and tongue were red and raw, but did not really question it. And they sent her home. She did go home in a taxi, but she could not even make it into the door without assistance. Her mother came out to help her and put her into bed. But later, Betty began to vomit blood. Her stomach was this unending, unbearable, and searing pain, and she started to go into shock. She was taken back to that same hospital, and they then tried to pump her stomach, but it didn't work. Betty Grant had died. Once this poison takes hold, even in just the instant after you ingest it, there's no cure or antidote. Once she ate that piece of candy from the man who was her boss, she had a death sentence. And it was a very painful, excruciating death sentence. It ravaged her body, just as it was ravaging June's. June's brother, Reg, all of these years later, still remembers what it was like to go to the hospital and see his parents after they were told that his sister had died. The doctors, which 
I don't know why they would have even brought this up, but told him or told the family that if she had somehow survived, she would not have been able to have children. But also that given the dosage, there was just no way that neither one of them could have lived. Now, just as we heard about with Catherine and Michael, it was pretty obvious about what had been used. The hospital contacted police and the police verified through their own pathologists that yes, it was Cantharidin. So they went to interview Arthur Ford, who was still in the hospital, the same hospital that both June and Betty had succumbed to the poison. He told the police that the candy, which is called coconut ice, had to have somehow been contaminated. He denied a lot of things throughout his questioning, but the police were very, very suspicious. First, he did deny stealing the cantharidin, but later he admitted to doing so. Then, of course, he denied lacing the candy, but then later admitted to that as well. The police then had to look at what was your motive. This was his story, that he had stolen it to feed two rabbits. He didn't explain that further, at least not that's reported. So the questions that would have been obvious at this point were, why were you going to give it to rabbits? Were you going to try to breed them and needed to get them in the mood? Really, why did you buy this for bunnies? Also, if that was the case, why would he have put it on candy? He did not feed the candy to the bunnies. So really big holes here, but he thought the police you know, might buy this, but they were not satisfied. And eventually he had to admit that all was lost and just tell them what had happened. And that was he was getting tired of Betty ignoring him and his advances, and he wanted the Spanish fly to act as an aphrodisiac. His defense was he used it with the intention of an aphrodisiac and not as a murder agent. So, unfortunately, this was his best defense and this, you know, this was the best defense to use because he was then charged with manslaughter because it was not his intent to kill either one of the young ladies. So, at the same location, the old Bailey that Catherine DeMay had once been tried, Arthur Ford sat in the presence of barristers, the jury, and family and friends of June and Betty, and he was found guilty of the manslaughters of both women. So right now you may be thinking, good, he's going to pay for what he did. He's going to pay, pay for the pain that he inflicted to these women, for the pain that he's caused their families, and that payment was five years. I'm just going to let that sit in. Five years. June's brother said that his parents were annoyed, upset, and angry, which I think would be very expected. June's fiancé threatened to kill Arthur, and he had to be restrained. As many of us know, even if someone is sentenced to five years in jail, it may not necessarily mean that he would serve five years in jail. It doesn't state how long he did actually serve, but he got out of jail. He had an opportunity. We don't know if his wife had decided to stay with him, if he still had access to see his children, but whether or not he did, he still had the opportunity 
to live a second part of his life. Now, this was a pretty big case at the time. So getting into now some of my thoughts and feelings, I'm hoping that people would recognize his name or face. Maybe remember, I know that name or I've seen his picture before and put two and two together. Or if he applied for a job and they actually bothered to check references, they would have to wonder why there was this huge gap in his employment history. And I say huge because I really doubt that he would put, want to put his previous employer down as a reference or even the name of the company because the name of the company may trigger a memory in the person hiring him, hoping that a prospective employer did their due diligence and questioned this gap in history. I hope he didn't get a job. I'm pretty sure that we can all agree that five years for a double manslaughter is just abominable. We also, at least in my opinion, have to look at this and consider whether or not it was manslaughter or should it have been murder. Looking back at that time frame, it was viewed as a manslaughter because he didn't mean to kill them. My perspective to an extent is, okay, it may have been considered manslaughter, but it was in the course of an attempted rape. I don't know if anybody or everybody will agree with me in the fact that I think by giving anybody any type of chemical agent to try to induce them to have sex with you is rape. And at least in the United States, in some states, if somebody dies during the course of a felony, then there can be what's called a felony murder charge, meaning you are responsible as a murder suspect, not manslaughter, but murder. So that's where my mind went is I think it should have been tried as a murder because he was attempting a rape. Again, I don't know how many people will agree with that, but given the fact that two women died just for his libido and he only served five years should incense everyone. Another thing that came to me while you know writing this up was how big must his ego have been beyond the fact that you know, how would he think he could get away with, you know, with killing them afterwards, you know, by making up this bunny story. Either he was just grasping at straws or he thought the police were too stupid to figure out what happened. But even more so, why would he think that by giving this woman an aphrodisiac that all of a sudden she would find him irresistible? Was there no other man that she might have found attractive? Why would she automatically fall into Arthur Ford's arms? There's no reasoning for that other than the fact that he had a huge ego and thought that he was the only man that she could come running to. And that makes me sick as well. Betty and June died for this man's ego and libido. It also to me plays into power because he was her boss. He was the one who decided whether or not she could keep her job. So he was pretty much just a malignant and horrible man altogether. It did not say whether or not he had daughters, but I have to wonder if someone even thought about doing that to one of his daughters, how would he have felt? 
but given some of his actions, who knows? He may not have felt anything at all. So as with most crimes, it affects more than just the immediate victims. Betty and June didn't get to live their lives. John didn't get to walk down the aisle with June. Neither father got to walk his daughter down the aisle. Or, you know, things are changing. Times are changing. Even though June was planning on getting married, maybe Betty wanted to further her career. Maybe she wanted to wait a while before she settled down, if she ever even decided to marry and have kids. There were opportunities coming along for women, and while it would still take many years before the harassment statutes would start to come into play, if she had been allowed to live, she may have seen some of those things come to fruition. We just never know because she was taken from this world. Both women were taken from their families, and every day their families have had to live with the fact that the man who killed them served less than five years, most likely. They have to live with the fact that he got out of jail and continued his life. He would have been under 50 years old. He still had a long way to go as long as he took care of himself. But these two young women died before they even turned 30. And in one case, even before she turned 20. So he took it away for nothing. He didn't listen to the pharmacist. So it seems like he thought he knew better that as someone in charge of the typist pool and wholesale of the orders, that he knew better than the pharmacist who worked with the actual chemicals and knew the exact effects of the cantharidin. But Arthur seems like he, he knew better. At least that's what he thought. And in doing so, took innocent lives and affected so, so many others. So, like I said, I found it a little hard to not put a lot of my feelings in while I was retelling the story because I just cannot imagine, for one thing, having to work in that environment and having to avoid him every day as your boss and wanting to keep your job. So you just had to deal with it at that time. That June just kind of got caught in the crossfire of this egomaniac and he never really paid. So this is where I'm ending the story today. Um, I'm not sure if everyone feels as incensed and angry as I feel about it, but I just don't understand how five years in any way served any form of justice. I do hope that you take some time also then to listen to my other podcast, Danger on Delmarva. That is where I cover very similar types of topics, but more regionalized in the, um, in the Delmarva region of America. That's all of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. I will leave the links to that in the description of the episode, as well as leaving the links to all of the sources that I used, including the original YouTube video that um, the YouTube video that I actually got inspired by to make this. Now I've been looking at things as well as far as resources that I use, 
especially with some of the older cases, I found it difficult to find information, to find newspaper articles, unless other people have already, you know, covered the topic and have links to those source materials. I do want to try to get a couple of subscriptions to newspaper sites because um, the Google Archive News um, just doesn't have as much of a selection that I need. So I may be starting either a Patreon or I've seen that PayPal can be used at times. I'm, I'm still kind of thinking about it because I don't necessarily want to put that out there. You know, I'm, I make the podcasts, the episodes, because I have been impacted by violent crime. Um, I just think there's so much that we need to learn from each individual case and try to find ways to prevent similar things from happening again. But just every day when I listen to the news, it seems like nothing is helping. Um, but I want to be able to get further in depth in some stories and I'm just kind of finding it hard to do that without having some of these subscription services to places like newspapers.com and a few other larger newspapers in the United States, um, as well as sometimes there are books that are referenced that I may need to read and sometimes those can cost so I am still kind of batting it about trying to decide whether or not I should do that. Um, you know, I if I do, I will leave links in the description. But again, I just I don't necessarily want to do that. But I'm just running into more and more roadblocks as you know, I do look at some older cases and it's really, really hard and frustrating not to be able to find information when I know it has to be out there somewhere. But to support the podcast in another way, if you know you find this type of content informative, you know, please share the podcast. Um, if you use a platform that will allow you to like or leave a comment or rate, please do so just because that helps um, with the algorithms that the different platforms used to, you know, offer suggestions when someone searches for different key terms. So I appreciate everybody hanging in and listening to this story or these stories today. Um, I hope everybody has a great rest of your weekend or your week. And I look forward to talking to everybody soon. Bye.